Is it a sin? Is it a crime? Loving you dear like I do If it's a crime then I'm guilty Guilty of loving you Hello, hello, hello. Welcome to Criminal Broads, a podcast about wild women on the wrong side of the law. As you know, the subtitle of this podcast is somewhat tongue-in-cheek. We do not always talk about women on the wrong side of the law. Sometimes we talk about women on the right side of the law. And today we're going to talk about a woman who got tangled up in the law. And I would venture to say that the person, the thing that was wrong in this instance was not the woman, but was the law itself. So, you guys, this podcast often focuses on really extreme crimes that are outliers, right? Like the front page stuff, serial killers, con women, Casey Anthony. But that's not really an accurate representation of what the criminal justice system looks like today or has ever looked like. The criminal justice system has never been packed with serial killers. I hope you know that. Most of the women who are moving through the criminal justice system are not serial killers, and they certainly aren't Casey Anthony. And there are a lot of them, a lot of women moving through the criminal justice system. Today, there are more women than ever moving through this system. Let me just tell you some quick stats. Between 1980 and 2019, the number of women who were incarcerated rose by more than 700 percent. Okay, so in 1980, there were just over 26,000 women locked up in the country. 26,000 women. In 2019, there were over 222,000 women locked up. That is an incredible spike. And this rate of growth, like the increase of women in prisons, has um, is, is happening much faster than the increase in incarcerated men. So who are these women? They're not serial killers. We've already said that. Well, many of them are women of color. Women of color are really overrepresented in the in prisons. So what this means is that, say, black women are 13% of America's population, but they are 30% of the incarcerated women's population. Does that make sense? So they're extremely overrepresented in the system. Um, many of these women are mothers, too. And most of them are mothers, actually, and most of them have been abused by men. So there are a lot of similarities between their stories. Now, if you've read my first book, Lady Killers, you might remember Daria Saltykova. She was a wealthy Russian psychopath from the 1700s who tortured and killed her servants. Daria is one of the I've written about a lot of women who have committed crimes, but Daria is like, if we're ranking them by badness, Daria is possibly at the top. You know, just just a terrible, terrible person. And her story is fascinating, of course, which is why I wrote about it. But these women making up the criminal justice system, making this crazy 700% increase, are not really, really bad people like Daria. They are ordinary people. They're often good people who got caught up in a system that the more you learn about it, the more it becomes obvious it's it's like a Venus flytrap. It is designed to trap people and to not let them go. So today, we're going to learn about one of these stories, one of the stories of the ordinary women 
who have moved through the criminal justice system and what that looked like. And this this story is going to get you all fired up. So listen all the way to the end if you want to hear some ways that you can help, some ways that are doable, achievable, and frankly, really exciting. Okay, and last thing before we start, guys, let me tell you, if you come to this podcast for the scary stories, don't worry, this story is terrifying, just not in the ways you might expect. I think that was when like depression definitely set in and I realized my predicament. It was beyond like, okay, they're gonna, you know, see it's a mistake. It's like, this is a horrific mistake. I'm not supposed to be here. No one knows I'm here. If anything happens to me, like they wouldn't even be able to be like, oh no, this is the person or this is the place where it happened that like they could literally just throw my body away and no one's gonna know that I was here and these people did me wrong. That's Sister Eli. She's a mom, a social worker, a New Yorker born and raised, an active member of her community. She went to a prestigious high school. She has both a bachelor's degree and a master's. Back in 2014, she worked at a police department, taking 911 calls. She thought these things were a sort of guarantee, a sort of protection. She was a member of her community, right? She was an American. Her rights were enshrined in the Constitution. No matter what happened to her, she would at least be considered innocent until proven guilty, right? And so, when her co-workers at the police department lied to her to get her to come into work and then told her she was a suspect for a crime she hadn't committed, Sister Eli thought, surely it was a misunderstanding. This is what the criminal justice system is supposed to be. Like, right? It's a due process. Me and him both have jobs. We're both active in the community. We have kids. You know, we have family. Like, this is where, like, your bail should be low or you should be released on your own recognizance. Um, Like, you should be able to go back and forth to work. And, you know, in my head the whole time, I'm like, this is what's going to happen. Like, they're going to understand it was a big mistake and I'm be able to go back to work. He's going to be able to go back to work. I have a baby on the way. Surely, it was a misunderstanding, she thought again. But it wasn't. Sister Eli grew up on the Lower East Side of New York City. It was a great upbringing, I thought. Like, I didn't know anything about the ACEs at first. Um, childhood experiences. There was mental illness. There was substance abuse. My mom uh, was not married to my father. My father was not around at all. So the person that I grew up calling my dad, you know, he was really someone that s- stepped up and loved my mom and just took care of me and my brother. And he was an amazing guy. But even with that relationship, like I got to see or experience Judaism. My mom and her family are Christian and we're Caribbean. So it was just a really, to me, a great experience. Like I didn't know what being poor was necessarily or 
that my blackness would have such an impact on my life later on because it was like, yeah, I'm black, but there were white people in my neighborhood. There were Asian people in my neighborhood. There were Spanish people in the neighborhood. But like we all interacted with each other. I think the biggest conflict or challenge that I had growing up was amongst my peers, like not wearing fly clothes, but I didn't think like, oh, it's because I'm poor. I couldn't wear fly clothes. Like my grandmother was like, I'm not going to waste my money on something that, you know, like Nikes and Jordans and stuff. Like when you could buy something that that's going to last longer and it's like more practical and, you know, like with savings, like my grandfather made sure we all had savings accounts as um, young children. So like, that's something that I feel like they instilled in me. And I still have like a savings account, even for my daughter who's six and, you know, starting my retirement at a job, even if I don't know if I'm going to be there, just, you know, putting into the plan and knowing that you could roll it over. Like that was the stuff that they instilled in me and education and reading and music. So I, I definitely felt like I had a blessed family life. She went to Hunter College High School, where she had classmates like Lin-Manuel Miranda, the creator of Hamilton. He was a few years ahead of her, and some of her classmates went to all his plays. But she preferred to go home and study hard. Next, she got her bachelor's degree in business administration and technology management from SUNY Cobbleskill. But that was work. She was also falling in love. She'd known Ishmael since she was about two years old. Her stepdad was his uncle, so they grew up together. They'd always been childhood friends. But after her first year at college, she came back to the city and suddenly they were talking together like adults. He was older than her and already married, but he wasn't happy. He's like, yeah, I'm having issues in my marriage and like, I don't know what I'm going to do. And, you know, just like we really bonded over that. And I was having issues in my relationship with this dude, which who was just like, he's like, I want to live with you, but I want to don't want to get married. And I want to have I want you to have my babies. And I'm like, who says that? Right. So he was like, yeah, that's not someone you should be with. And just like talking back and forth and bonding over that. And then eventually like just falling, I guess, head over heels with each other. And when he decided that he didn't want to be with his wife anymore, he's like, I want to be with you. Sister Eli and Ishmael started dating in 2003 and they got married in 2005. Ishmael was Muslim. And so they were married Islamically in a ceremony called a nikah ceremony. They were married in front of a mirror, and their marriage contract was considered to be a living document that changed as their needs changed. It was a beautiful ceremony, but in the eyes of the state, it wasn't legal. This didn't seem like a big deal at the time. They were married, and they were happy. At first, Sister Eli didn't convert. Ishmael didn't want her to. He thought it would be too hard and that she'd have to change too much about herself. They lived their lives as they knew best. And then, in 2013, tragedy struck. Sister Eli is bisexual, and she had a girlfriend then. She was working two or three jobs. For a long time, she'd wanted to work in a field where she could help people, but she was busy then, distracted. And then everything changed when her girlfriend had a heart attack. And when she died, massive coronary right in front of me, I was like, oh, my gosh, I need to get serious about like what I want to do with myself, with my life and like helping people or just, you know, like life is not promised. And I prayed on it. Like I started going to Bible study. So I still was like going to church and I was going to Bible study. And like 
I don't know, it just became so clear for me. I was like, I'm going to start wearing the hijab. Her husband was surprised, but supportive. And he was like, oh, you're really doing this? And I'm like, yeah. And then from there, he was like, if you want information, like you can ask me questions, but I suggest you like research yourself. Don't get so stuck where someone tells you this is what it is. And then, and that's because of a culture, not because of what the Quran says. Like if you read the Quran and interpret it for yourself, like, and make sure it feels right for yourself, like in your heart and in your soul. So that's what I've been doing. And then even just trying to find female groups or African-American groups, because it's, it is like, once I started searching, it is a lot of culture and politics within their religion. So I had to like search for myself somewhere where I feel comfortable asking questions, uh, uh, you know, like gender specific questions also, not just like, oh, how do you pray and how do you eat? But like, okay, I got my period. So like, (laughs) what do I do now? Every January, Ishmael had a party in memory of his brother, who had died in 2005. In 2014, the party was scheduled for January 17th. They were living in Connecticut at the time. Normally, Sister Eli would host the party, but not that year. I was pregnant, like very, very pregnant and um, very hormonal. So it was like, no, you can't smoke cigarettes in here. And I don't want all those people in my house because usually I would just let them like hang out in the basement or downstairs. But like, I was just annoyed (laughs) that day. Um, So they went actually and did it in someone's apartment. The party was proceeding nicely at first. But one of the guests at the party was dating a girl whose family lived in the same apartment building. At some point, the girlfriend's brothers showed up. They were angry. They'd heard that she had been assaulted by her boyfriend, who was at the party, and they wanted revenge. Ishmael watched the violence escalate and decided that he needed to get out of there. And it just turned into a big ordeal where they they fought and... Like, it should have been over, like, after they fought. But, like, they kept knocking on the door and fighting. So he he called me and was like, can you come pick me up? Like, I'm drunk. And that was another thing. Like, I was like, oh, you're drunk. You know, I'm pregnant. I got to go to work the next morning. <laughs> like, you should have made better plans or not drank so much. Like, call a cab. And while I, literally, while I was on the phone with them, like, I heard them arguing again. And now I'm up out my seat, like, oh, my God, what's going on? He was like, oh, babe, I'll call you back there fighting. And he was like, get off them, get off them, stop fighting. And the phone went dead. Sister Eli was panicked now with no idea what was happening. What she didn't know at the time was that the brothers had left and then called for reinforcements. They came back with four other men, plus their father. They were carrying weapons, knives and swords. Sister Eli would see photos of these weapons later. The fighting escalated and escalated until someone pulled out a gun and fired. The bullet hit the dad in the chest. He died later at the hospital. Meanwhile, Sister Eli was waiting for her husband to come home. I don't know how long it was. It just, it seemed like forever. But eventually he came home 
And I'm like, what happened? You ain't never called me back or whatever. And he was like, oh, nothing. Just go to sleep. And the next morning when he, like, he made me breakfast, he defrosted my car, you know, because I, I believe it snowed or something. But he definitely made sure the car was warm for me and stuff. The normal, like, just typical, normal, how we wake up. And he was like, yo, I think someone got shot last night. Ishmael assured her that he didn't have anything to do with the shooting. But for the next week, he was visibly stressed. He suspected that he was going to get blamed for the murder. And I'm like, what's going on? And he's like, oh, I think they're going to say that I did it. And I'm like, who? Like, who? He's like the streets. And I'm like, I don't know. Like, who is the streets? And he's like, I don't know. Just everything is, you know, he's like... just so much going on. Right. And I'm like, okay, well, maybe we should go speak to the officers and let them know like what you saw, if you saw anything that you didn't do it. And he's like, don't be stupid. You know, I worked for the police department. So I'm like, what are you talking about? Don't be stupid. Like I work with these people, just give a statement and it'll be okay. He's like, you don't go into the police department unless there's a warrant for you. One. And two, he was like, I think you should get a lawyer. And I'm like, what sh- What do I need a lawyer? He was like, because if they come for me, they're going to come for you. Despite this ominous pronouncement, Sister Eli was sure everything was going to be okay. After all, Ishmael swore to her that he hadn't killed anyone, and she'd been home all night, so she knew she hadn't done anything. She convinced Ishmael to go to New York City to see her grandparents for their wedding anniversary. They ate lamb there and spent the night. Ishmael told his wife that he was feeling better, and then he left to go hang out with his brother. That same day, Sister Eli got a strange call from her employer, the police department. They told her that they wanted to speak to her about a 911 call she'd taken. She asked if it could wait until the next day, when she was scheduled to come into work. They told her, "Mm, no, it can't wait. So she drove from New York back to Connecticut and went to see the police. At first, they're like, oh, how how was your grandparents' anniversary? My lieutenant went, um, Lieutenant Gilmore, when he got me. So it's like he knew that it was about, you know, like I went down for, to see my grandparents for the anniversary. He brings me up to the detective office. They have me waiting. I'm playing cookie jam. You know, just like real light talk. But then they they sit, they sit me down and they're asking me questions about like, who's Ishmael? Who's Sean? Who's... Day day, whose country, whose problem? I'm like, I don't know who none of those people is. Like, what are you at? Like, you said to come here to speak about a call. Like, so, like, it sounds like you're interrogating me. And I'm like, do I need my union rep? Do I need a lawyer? Like, and and they're like, no, you're not. You don't need any of those people. It's gonna only complicate things. And they bring me to another room which has like crime scene pictures. And my and my pictures and my pictures up there, and I'm like, why is my picture up there with a crime with with crime scene photos? And they're like, oh, we heard you were a getaway driver, and I'm like, what a getaway driver for what? Like, I'm I'm so pregnant, I don't even want to go into work in the morning. What am I getaway driver for? And they were like, yeah, we heard that you like drove the suspect for for a shooting away, and I'm like, yeah, because that definitely didn't happen. Like, I never even ever went to where the party was, the fight, the shooting, nothing. Like, I did not even make it there. And I'm like, what are you guys, like, this, I I wasn't working this night when this happened. I was at home, in my bed, sleep. And I was like, so you guys lied to me to get here. They also informed her that her husband was wanted for murder. 
As soon as Ishmael learned of the warrant for his arrest, he got a lawyer and he turned himself in. Sister Eli was scared, but she still felt sure that the whole thing was a misunderstanding that would be cleared up before too long. Throughout the next week, she was questioned several more times by police. And then one day, they showed up at her door. The guy knocked on my door and he asked his partner, should I put bracelets on her? And I'm like, bracelets, what? Um, You guys got to give me a minute, you know, to get properly dressed then if you're going to take me down to the station. And I go to close my door and he put his foot in the door. Like he wouldn't let me close it. And um, like I had a t-shirt and and spandex or something on, but like I had to get dressed, dressed, um, sweatpants and stuff. And he was like, no, you got five minutes. So like I only put on a, I think I only put on a sweater on top of my shirt. I didn't even put on a coat and they took me down. And again, they took me to the detective bureau. They didn't take me to lock up and was like, do you have anything to say? Think about your baby. You don't want your child to end up in the foster care system. You don't want to go to jail. And I'm like, I have nothing to say if you're not going to give me union rep or my lawyer. Like, I'm not understand. Like, you're asking me questions. I don't have answers for you. They're like, where's the gun? I'm like, what gun? They're like, we need to know where the gun is at. I'm like, what gun? Like, I'm, I don't understand. Like, you brought me down here. And they're like, well, if you're not going to help yourself, then you're under arrest. So they, they told me I was under arrest, like, after I didn't answer questions again. They took me down to lock up. They took, they took my glasses they took my start David, they took my wedding band. And then they were like, what do you want to keep your shirt or your sweater? And I'm like, what do you mean? What do I want to keep my shirt or my sweater? They was like, you can only have one. I'm like, I can only have one. It's like freezing. We was in the middle of a polar vortex. I'm like, am I going to get a blanket or like, they're like, no, like, which one do you want to keep? And I was like, I guess I'll keep my sweater. Cause it was a little bit furrier and a little bit thicker. But yeah, that definitely didn't help because I was still freezing in that cell. No blanket, no heater, no, it was just that concrete and it like holds on to the cold. Pregnant, alone, freezing, and no one knew where she was. She asked for her phone call and they told her she'd get a phone call later. One of her coworkers came by and said, see, I told you he was bad. They didn't know her husband at all. But when they looked at him, they saw a black man who had made some mistakes when he was younger and who had children from a previous marriage. In their eyes, he was bad until proven good. Guilty until proven innocent. And so was she. The next day, Sister Eli was arraigned. What that means is that she was brought to court to hear the charges against her. She still didn't have her glasses, and she felt like she couldn't hear properly without them. She could hardly see the lawyer next to her, and the paperwork in front of her looked blurry. The whole thing was terribly disorienting. I I remember I kept telling them, like, I'm pregnant. I haven't eaten all day. They told me I was going to get breakfast. Can I have orange juice or something because I feel lightheaded? They was like, oh, when you you get to the prison, you'll get a meal. And I'm like, when I go to the prison, I'm like, what happened to bail or, like, being released on my own recognizance? And I forget who it was that came in. I forget what the title of the person was, but... They were like, oh, your bill's 20000 And I'm like, 20000 Why so high? They was like, that's actually low. You should be happy we offered it that low. I'm like, 20000 Like, that's half of my salary. Like, who's supposed to pay that? Like, that's my salary for the whole year. Not, oh, I make that in a month or two months. Like, how am I supposed to pay that? 
And then you didn't give me a phone call to let anyone know where I was at so that they could even attempt to try to pay anything. So it's like you already knew that I was going to prison because you're sending me to prison. You didn't give me any option to pay this bail. She was sent to the Niantic Correctional Institution and thrown into a cell with three other women. One of them was also pregnant. Another one was on her period. And that woman had to get sent to the emergency room just to get a pad. After spending the night there, Sister Eli was finally allowed to make her phone call. Or at least, she was finally allowed to try to make her phone call. On the third day was when I was able to attempt to make a phone call. But those collect phone calls are not actually collect. Like, you have to have an account set up. I tried to make a call and it said the the phone wasn't set up. So I couldn't, um, it wouldn't connect to my grandparents or my mom. And at that point, I'm like, okay, now I'm going to be here forever. <laughs> like I sort of, like I just went into my cell and laid on the cot and was like, yeah, nobody knows I'm here. No one, you know, like I'm going to die in prison. After four days of no one knowing where she was, Sister Eli's grandmother found her and bailed her out. Ishmael had figured out that she wasn't home and had called her family, begging them to find her. Bail had been set for him, too, but his was impossible. His bail was set at $1 million. Sister Eli had already experienced some of the terrors of the bureaucracy of the criminal justice system. It's this insidious bureaucracy, like the idea that you can't make a phone call unless you have an account already set up. It's a bureaucracy that's designed to crush people the second they come in contact with it. That phone call was only the beginning of her bureaucratic nightmare. As the case against her trudged along, her job put her on administrative leave, so she wasn't getting paid. But on paper, it looked like she was still getting her salary since she hadn't been fired yet, which meant that she didn't qualify for a public defender. So she had to pay for a lawyer herself. So she couldn't afford her apartment. So she went back to New York City to stay with her grandparents, but she couldn't stay with them for longer than 10 days for fear of getting them evicted. So she tried to stay in a shelter, but they told her that she needed an eviction letter to stay there. So she had to couch surf. One thing led to another to another— it was like a wave crashing down on top of another wave, each one designed to make it more and more impossible for her to come up for air. In May of 2014, four months after her life turned upside down, she had her baby, a daughter. Ishmael never got to hold her. Instead, over the phone, he whispered the shahada into her ear, a declaration of faith as per Islamic tradition. In the meantime, Sister Eli was losing what little faith she had left in the system. The police asked her to do things like sign a statement that she had never given, and they kept her there for 12 hours without letting her eat. She knew that she had a constitutional right to a speedy trial, but as one year dragged into two, she found the idea of a speedy trial laughable. Her lawyer told her not to push for a faster trial because her trial depended on whether or not her husband was convicted. And I'm like, so if he gets found not guilty, like, am, like, are the charges against me going to be dropped? And he was like, I don't know, but it should. You know, he was like, the state attorney does funny stuff sometimes. Like, you had people that are co-defendants. One gets off and one doesn't. 
you know, so he was like, it, it, it really depends on like what kind of mood the state is in. And I'm like, that doesn't make any sense. Like, why does it have to be you're in a mood when if the, ev- if the evidence presents itself, you should be able to say, no, I'm dropping the charges. They should be able to say, sorry, like we have to look, we have to do more investigations, but they don't do that. Ishmael was offered a plea deal of 35 years in prison, a staggering amount of years that Sister Eli doesn't consider a plea deal at all. He refused the deal. After all, he insisted he was innocent. And if you're innocent, you should want to go to trial, right? That's how this whole thing is supposed to work, right? But the jury found him guilty. One of the things they found him guilty of, along with murder and reckless endangerment, was possession of a weapon, even though the gun, the murder weapon, had never been found. The judge gave him 45 years. I, I remember I was volunteering in my daughter's classroom and I walked out. I was like, I have to go. Like, I got some bad news. Um, and I was just crying and snotting and just like, this is like, wow, this system really doesn't offer any protections. If you could show evidence where it's blatantly clear that someone did not do something, contradictions in statements and like obvious police coercion, right? Because at this point, I don't know if it's, the state attorney or the police or who it is, but there's coercion somewhere because of all the contradictions and, you know, it's sloppy and, you know, you just not, you know, you don't care about our rights. Then like, what chance is there that like my case coming up is going to be any different or anyone else's case. So now I'm sort of like, now I'm like, I should go back to school and do social work. And go back to school. She did. As Sister Eli worked on her master's and continued to fight her case and finally got a court date, she started getting sick, like really sick. She was throwing up to the point that her three-year-old daughter would be rubbing her back at two in the morning. But her doctors dismissed her, telling her it was probably food poisoning or acid reflux. And again, that's when I realized being a Black female doesn't necessarily grant me anything. Like, I kept being told it was food poisoning. I kept being told that I'm eating spicy food. And I'm like, no, I'm in serious pain. Like, I'm sick. And I ended up needing to have surgery. But it happened, like, the week where we were supposed to do um, jury selection. And the judge had the audacity to tell me that I was trying to delay proceedings. Despite the judge's ridiculous claim that she was scheduling surgery just to mess with him, Sister Eli went to the hospital and had her gallbladder taken out. The next day, she was in incredible pain, but she got up, got dressed, and went to court. She threw up on her way out of the hospital. She'd waited long enough for a trial. She wasn't going to miss this one. When she arrived at the courtroom, things were different. So I went to court and... I remember the judge called the state attorney into the into his chambers and my and my lawyer. And I'm like, oh, finally, like he's going to drop the charges like he sees like, you know, like in my head, I'm like, oh, finally, they, they realize that they did something wrong. She comes back to offer me a plea deal.
A plea deal. Sounds good, right? It's got the word deal in it. If you're charged with a crime, you very well may get offered a plea deal at some point. What it means is that if you plead guilty or no contest, the prosecutor will recommend a less serious sentence or will reduce the charges against you or will maybe drop the charges altogether. A plea deal is a way out. Or at least, that's what it looks like on the surface. The truth is far more poisonous. We have misnamed plea bargaining from the outset, and it has caused this exact problem, where not only lay people, but actual courts who should know better um, operate on the assumption that, hey, it's just two people making a deal, and whatever comes out of that deal um, will be the efficient state of affairs, and we don't need to get involved. Obviously, that is nonsense on every level. Um, you know, if you go into a used car dealership and you go there to make a deal, but the first thing they do is lock you in a tiny room and don't let you out until you um, take what they have on the lot, no one would call that a fair deal, right? But that's what plea negotiation is. That's Samil Trivedi, a senior staff attorney at the ACLU's Criminal Law Reform Project in D.C., He tells me that we've got a real plea deal problem going on in this country. That's not how the Founding Fathers intended it. They wanted trials by jury, not backroom deals. In fact, they thought that having a trial with a jury of your peers was such an important right for Americans that they enshrined this right twice in the Constitution, once in the Bill of Rights and once in the original text itself. But today... That trial by a jury of your peers is actually incredibly rare. It almost never happens. Some 95% of convictions happen because of a plea deal. How did we get here? Right from the outset, um, we have an over-criminalization problem in America, right? Everything you do is a crime. We've all heard the sort of adage that everyone commits three felonies a day, right? Um, And that's a result of sort of tough on crime politics, right? The fact that we elect our judges and prosecutors and for a long time, people just tried to out-tough each other and legislatures played along and ratcheted up criminal penalties and, and created criminal penalties where we probably didn't need them. And so right off the gate, for any given amount of conduct that someone commits that may or may not be criminal, where we used to have maybe one statute, now we have four. So a prosecutor can load all four of those criminal charges onto an indictment, um, and each one of those four will contain a a, a penalty, a sentence. Um, And therefore, what was previously um, a proportionate uh, amount of penalty that someone could get is now vastly disproportionate. So right off the bat, you're staring down a lot more years than you used to. This overcriminalization problem the everybody-commits-three-felonies-a-day problem, has been happening for a while, but it really boomed in the 70s and 80s with the war on drugs. So let's say you commit a crime, and now you're facing a terrifyingly long sentence if you go to trial and are found guilty. So that's one reason you'll feel a lot of pressure to take a plea deal. A second reason is that you're also probably going to be held in jail as you await trial, even though you're supposed to be presumed innocent. Right. And that used to also be the exception to the rule. Right. Only in cases of extreme dangerousness um, or a really well articulated risk that someone would flee the jurisdiction. Right. And this was before we could track people down with the Internet. Um, you know, we would maybe hold you pretrial. Otherwise, the default was you get out because you're guilty. You're innocent until proven guilty. Right. Um, 
And so you're entitled to your liberty. Now the presumption is totally flipped. We, we incarcerate about three quarters of the people we arrest pre-trial, even though they are legally innocent. And that sort of speaks to my car dealership analogy, right? If you are a mother who gets picked up on a petty drug charge, but you can't pay your cash bail, so you're sitting in jail while you consider what to do next, you're way more likely to just take a deal and get out, even though you might be innocent or you might have struck a much more fair deal if you were negotiating with your freedom, right? But instead, you're stuck in a dangerous jail um, separated from your family, separated from your work, separated from your education, right? And you'll, you're more likely to just do anything, take any deal to get out. You probably won't be surprised to learn that these issues, the issues with plea deals, affect people of color a lot more than they affect white people, and that they hurt poor people a lot more than they hurt rich people. But you might be surprised to learn about one specific population that plea deals affect. It's a population that Sister Eli was newly a part of the population of mothers. Right, you know, we talk a lot about family separation at the border, and we rightly should, right? But America does a lot of family separation every single day through the criminal justice system, and not just through mothers who are ultimately convicted. But again, mothers who get picked up are legally innocent, but thrown in jail, and you can imagine the kind of pressure that is on them to get back to their family. I mean, this pressure is on everybody, but extremely acute for mothers um, who have family obligations, right? And so I don't begrudge anybody, innocent or otherwise. You know, we ought, uh, critics of my worldview often say, if you're innocent, fight it, right? Which is like laughably naive in the, in the modern system, but really laughably naive in this particular situation where you are separated from your kids, right? And your, and, and your partner. Um, and every single day does uh, incalculable trauma to that family, not having their mother there. Um, and so, of course, um, if it's if it's the if it's a choice between um, going home to your kids who miss you and cannot get to school and cannot, you know, make their own food um, without you there, or you know, having a conviction on your record, you're you're gonna you're gonna side with your family and you're gonna take that conviction. Sister Eli was shocked when the prosecution offered her a plea deal. She wanted the charges against her dropped. She knew she was innocent. Oh, and speaking of those charges, at first she'd been charged with driving a getaway car. But since there wasn't enough evidence for that, the prosecution changed the charges against her to hindering prosecution in the second degree. They were basically arguing that because she'd been with her husband the week before he turned himself in, she had been knowingly harboring a fugitive. Never mind that her husband had turned himself in as soon as he found out about the warrant. Remember how Somil talked about how people often take plea deals because they're staring down a lot of years in prison if they go to trial and are found guilty? That's called the trial penalty, and it's exactly what happened to Sister Eli. She thought she was looking at one to three years in prison, which isn't nothing. But when she was offered the plea deal, she asked, well, how many years in prison am I facing if I'm found guilty? The answer was three to ten years. This blindsided her. 
I'm not understanding why that's the charge. And it was like, cause it's a murder charge. And I'm like, well, can I come back tomorrow with an answer? Right. Cause we was already in the middle of selecting um, jury. Like, I feel like we selected um, all of them. We were in the middle of like doing dates or whatever. And then they, you know, the judge like just spontaneously was like, can you see me in chambers? So they were like, no, once you leave the deals off the table. And I'm like, I don't understand. Like, you don't, you're not even giving me a chance to think about it, to consider anything. Like, I didn't know I was looking at three to 10 years. I thought it was one to three years. She felt an incredible amount of pressure to take this deal. And that pressure is there on purpose. These are called exploding offers. Prosecutors will say, take it or leave it. If you come back tomorrow, the deal will be worse. Or it won't be there at all. Here's Samil again. And again, we associate that with like used car hacks selling lemons, right? If you walk off the lot today, I'm not sure I'll be able to offer you this tomorrow, right? But this is people's lives. This is multiple years in prison that we're talking about adding simply because someone had the gall to think it over for a day, right? Or had the goal to assert their right to trial to say, look, I'm not taking this deal because I have rights and you have to send me discovery. And I'm going to, you know, I'm going to seek a suppression hearing because I think that cop lied um, in the police report. Every time you do that, that angers the prosecution and they add more years to the, to the offer. Um, and there comes a point where any rational person would say, forget my right to trial. It's not worth it. Uh, uh, I'm not going to risk it because I've got a family. I've got a life. I've got a job. Right. So I'll take this deal, whatever. So Sister Eli consulted with her family. Her daughter was there, too, in the room with her. She tried to spend as much time with her daughter as she could, afraid that she might eventually be taken away from her girl for years. This wasn't the first time the prosecution had tried to bargain with her, by the way. A few years earlier, they had said that they would drop all the charges against her if she testified against her husband. Since their marriage wasn't considered legal, she didn't get spousal privilege— The prosecutors also asked her to testify that her husband had been acting guilty by fleeing to New York to visit her grandparents for their anniversary. She refused to do any of this. But now she was being pressured from all sides to accept this deal or to face a potential three to ten year sentence. Ultimately, she took the deal because of her daughter. She couldn't bear to say that she was guilty, though— And so she took an Alford plea, which is when you admit that because of the evidence, you would probably be found guilty in a trial, but you don't technically admit that you're guilty. This still wasn't how Sister Eli really felt, of course. She was so angry when she took the plea in front of the judge that she was crying. Sister Eli got her Master of Social Work degree in August of 2019, and she finished her probation in August of 2020. The contact that she'd had with the criminal justice system, or as she calls it now, the criminal injustice system, affected almost every area of her life, from her housing to her marriage. Because she had a record now, she was often automatically denied for things, and then she was forced to appeal. So, for example, in order to move into public housing with her grandparents, she was automatically rejected and then had to appeal. 
to video chat with her incarcerated husband, she was automatically rejected and then had to appeal. The system clearly had no interest in helping her re-enter society. It was like they wanted to make it as difficult as possible. It was like they wanted to keep punishing her forever. Still, she rose. When she realized that her probation office had no interest in helping her overcome the obstacles that her plea deal had created for her, she got involved with the Women's Prison Association, which is a fantastic nonprofit in New York City that's actually the nation's first organization for women impacted by incarceration. There, she joined their Women's Leadership and Media Project, where she and other women were trained in things like policy and advocacy, in media literacy, and trauma-informed storytelling. As you can tell from this podcast, Sister Eli is a powerful advocate for her own story. Today, she works for a nonprofit social service agency called Henry Street Settlement, and she is working on forming a restorative justice hub in the Lower East Side, where she grew up. Despite incredible obstacles, she's doing the work that she set out to do in 2013 when she lost her girlfriend and converted to Islam. And Ishmael? He's incarcerated at Cheshire Correctional Institution, a facility with draconian policies. Here's one. The children of incarcerated men aren't allowed to send their fathers pictures that are drawn in marker or crayon. Because of COVID, the men there are kept in their cells for about 22 hours a day. They have to pick between disinfecting their cells and using the phone. They're not allowed the time to do both. Ishmael has only seen his daughter in person a few times, and when she visits him, she's not allowed to sit on his lap or play patty cake. Once she tried, and the guards told her to keep her hands to herself. She came home crying. Sister Eli hasn't seen her husband in five years. When she was on probation, she wasn't allowed to visit him. And now we're in a pandemic. She can't wait for their first visit. Yes, I'm going to hug him and squeeze him and give him kisses. Ishmael has a court date coming up in 2023. He and Sister Eli are hoping against hope that the state will admit that they made a mistake and drop the charges against him. Of course, the state isn't in a habit of admitting they made mistakes. I mean, he, he's like, oh, it's a mistake, but he, he, he's more so like the state won't just admit that they made a mistake and say, I'm sorry. Like, they're, they're going to spin it. They, they're going to have to pin it on someone and say the mistake was not ours. It was somebody. But they have to do it in a way where, like, where they can say this is this person's mistake and we didn't have anything to do with it. Like, whether you pin it on someone from the office and like, you know, they weren't following protocols or the police, the office itself doesn't want to look liable. And that's sad. It's like, if, you know, we are held accountable for our mistakes, but you, you're not, as an office, you're not accountable for your mistakes. And we understand mistakes happen, but like you let them linger so long that it, the trickle down effects and the collateral consequences are the same is detrimental to the whole family. All 
right, everyone. Thank you so much for listening to this story. If you are as appalled as I am about these huge problems in our criminal justice system, stay tuned for one more second because I'm going to give you some ideas of some really cool and I hate the word actionable because I feel like I run a startup in San Francisco, but some actionable steps that we can all take together. But first, thank you for the feedback on the last episode, the Casey Anthony episode. I asked you if you preferred obscure cases or famous ones, and every single one of you said the same thing, which is exactly how I feel, which is you like obscure cases with a mix of some famous cases thrown in. So I was thrilled to hear that. I love that we're all on the same wavelength. If that is not your opinion, speak now or forever hold your peace. But that is what I plan to do. So this is exciting. This is great. Um, go to Instagram.com slash criminal broads for photos from today's episode. And now let's, oh, wait, 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 before we go, before I get to the actionable steps, I got to thank my patrons. Can't believe I almost forgot. Forgive me, patrons. Thank you to this episode's fabulous patrons, Rachel T and Kaylee. Thank you so much for making this possible. Okay, let's talk next steps. First of all, do you remember how we just talked about how the, the Connecticut prison where uh, Ishmael is currently incarcerated, how they have the conditions there are horrible and children like can't even send a letter in crayon. I mean, crayon is, of course, the most threatening of <laughs> of art supplies. But, you know, it, it's just a, these conditions are absurd. So um, Sister Eli actually has a change.org posi- uh, petition up that we can all sign It needs a thousand signatures and it's almost there. We can definitely get it there. I'm going to put the link in the show notes, okay? So go to the show notes. If you don't know what show notes are, email me and I'll tell you. I'll send you the link myself, but look for that change.org petition. It's a petition for the governor of Connecticut to improve the conditions at that correctional facility, okay? Uh, The second thing you can do is you can donate to the Women's Prison Association, the WPA. Now, I, I mean, don't be too impressed by what an amazing person I am, but I, do, I am a monthly donor to them, and <laughs> I got a tote bag because of it, which is my most prized tote bag. I don't think there are still tote bags available. That was during a special time, but you can still become a monthly donor, which is super helpful for nonprofits because then they can like count on the money coming in. You can donate one time. You can go right now and donate $5. Um, I'll link to the, to the women's prison association too in the show notes, but they are just truly incredible. And every time I interact with them, I'm left feeling like, well, thank goodness someone out there cares about people and is doing good in the world. Um, I also want to specifically thank Diana McHugh for helping me with this episode and introducing me to Sister Eli and just making it possible. Of course, I want to thank Sister Eli. Isn't she such a badass? We love her. Um, huge thanks to her for coming on the podcast and telling her story so beautifully. And thanks to our other best friend, Samil, too, for coming on to talk about plea deals and what the freaking deal with them is and it's not pretty is it on that note i want to end on another quote from samil because i asked him what we could do like do like should we despair is the system completely broken should we just fold our hands and you know watch netflix and give up and his response was actually quite encouraging to me 
So what he said was, and I'm going to play you this quote, but what he's basically saying is we should be paying attention to our local prosecutor races. So prosecutors are elected. Defense lawyers are not. Prosecutors are elected. And so a lot of the reason we have these, like, this clogged up system and this over-reliance on plea deals is because for a long time, prosecutors to get elected would be like, I'm tough on crime. No, I'm more tough on crime. And, you know, that was a way to get people to vote for them. So the way to reverse this is to vote for prosecutors who are less tough on crime. And listen, I know that sounds really scary to people. Like some people, I think to some people that sounds like I'm saying vote for prosecutors who like serial killers, but that's not what this means at all. Um, we're looking for prosecutors who are committed to investing in communities, who are committing into things like ending mass incarceration, ending cash bail. Um, we'll talk more about this in future episodes because I think this is really interesting. But don't think that I'm telling you to vote for people who are just like, let the serial killers run wild on the streets, <laughs> because that's not at all what is happening. And I'm, I think we can see that the tough on crime policies that have come into place over the last couple of decades, like, actually are not really doing anything. They're just locking more and more people up, but they're not like fixing society of crime or anything like that. So anyway, we want to pay attention to our prosecution races. I mean, uh, yeah, yeah, our, race, our races for prosecutors. And if you live in New York, I just found out that there is actually a race happening this year for the DA of Manhattan. This is a huge job. It's a four-year job. And there's a race this year um, the DA is like the lead prosecutor for the area. So anyway, I'm going to link to that race in the show notes and I want to give you homework. I want you to click on it and start looking at the people and see who you would like to vote for. Even if you don't live here, see, see who you think you like. And then we're going to dive more into it later. Okay. Is this the world's longest episode yet? I fear it is, but let's end with this quote from Samil on what we can do and listen until the very end because there's some good news there. All right. Thank you, everyone. I really appreciate you listening. Talk to you later. We, we can turn this thing around, um, particularly because we've talked about the fact that prosecutors have a lot of this power. And in most places in America, prosecutors are elected, right? So you can go out and change this by voting for prosecutors who commit not to use all these draconian tactics against um, their defendants, their adversaries, right? Um, and, and within that, you can lobby um, and, and, you know, get involved in, in scaling back or eliminating these individual tools that they use, right? So if you help get rid of cash bail in your, in your jurisdiction, you're going to vastly reduce the number of people who are held pretrial and therefore put to this impossible choice where they have to say, I either go home or I take a deal, right? Because they'll already be home. Um, you can try to get rid of mandatory minimums, right? We hear a lot about mandatory minimums. Mandatory minimums are the thing that makes that delta between your trial exposure and your plea offer so high, right? What we call the trial penalty. It's mandatory minimums that do that in a lot of cases. Let's get rid of mandatory minimums, um, right? Um, and overall, as a whole, let's move to a society where we vastly cut down on the number of crimes on the books. We just decriminalize America, right? There are some, there's a, a small handful of things that need to be dealt with with the criminal justice system. Most other things need to be dealt with with services and education and community investment, right? And that's a long-term 
Some would say utopian ideal, but that's what we're fighting for um, because that will reduce the number of things that rise to the level of criminal and therefore reduce the pressure on prosecutors, judges, defense attorneys, everyone to engage in this sick game of plea bargaining. And instead, we'll have a manageable number of criminal cases that can actually go to trial and where the public can actually feel confident that we are um, you know, holding culpable people guilty and leaving everybody else alone. And, and it, there are races that turn on a couple thousand votes here and there, right? Um, so you can make a real difference. Absolutely. If, if, if each of your readers talks to five of their friends about how absolutely important it is, prosecutor races are for dismantling mass incarceration and systemic racism, you can change it. I promise you. Maybe I'm right, maybe I'm wrong, loving you dear like I do. If it's a crime, then I'm guilty, guilty of loving you. Seeking the truth never gets old. Introducing June's Journey, the free-to-play mobile game that will immerse you in a thrilling murder mystery. Join June Parker as she uncovers hidden objects and clues to solve her sister's death in a beautifully illustrated world set in the Roaring Twenties. With new chapters added every week, the excitement never ends. Download June's Journey now on your Android or iOS device or play on PC through Facebook games.